1: Hello Jamaica, hello world. Welcome to another Impacting Jamaica podcast. I am Shelly Ann Harris. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting with a multifaceted Caribbean man who has been known to bring honor and prestige to our region. Professor Brendan Bain is a physician and academic and has been outstanding in all three areas in which the University of the West Indies requires its faculty to perform, teaching, research and publications, and service to community. Well respected and admired, Professor Bain was the inaugural lead coordinator of the UWI HIV AIDS Response Program and director of the Regional Coordinating Unit, Caribbean HIV AIDS Regional Training, CHART. He has also provided consultancy services to several regional governments, the Caribbean Council of Churches and the Pan American Health Organization. Thoughtful, warm, and astute, Professor Bain has a heart for social issues and has recently become involved in addressing and attempting to solve deep, complex issues regarding masculinity and fatherhood in Jamaica. Friends, listeners, it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Brendan Bain to Impacting Jamaica. Professor Bain, welcome.
2: Thank you, Shellyan. It's my pleasure to be with you.
1: Awesome. My first question to get things going, describe your upbringing. You know, a lot of people know about your achievements, but they don't know about you, the man. So describe your upbringing and how Jamaica came to be your home.
2: I was born a little boy in Trinidad and Tobago. I grew up in the small town of Orima and I went to school and church there. I learned to play games. I wasn't always a good loser, but I played (laughs) football and tennis in my neighborhood. I roamed in the nearby countryside with friends and I learned to ride a bicycle, which was my birthday gift at age 10. Hmm. I, I sat the equivalent of the common entrance exam from Arima Boys Government School and won a scholarship to attend high school in Port of Spain at Queen's Royal College. It was an honor to attend QRC, as everybody called it. Because several years before me, there were famous persons who attended that school, including the first Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, the first West Indian Chancellor of UWI, and the well-known author V.S. Naipaul. At QRC, I enjoyed myself. I played all the games that I learned in Arima and represented the school in football and cricket. I also took part in the Youth for Christ and the Inter-School Christian Fellowship Clubs and represented the school in the National Schools Challenge quiz in Trinidad.
1: Oh, okay.
2: How Jamaica became my home? Yes. The short answer is a man's mind plans his way as he journeys through life, but the Lord directs his steps and establishes them. Yeah. I'm quoting from a translation of the Bible, a modern translation, a, a, a verse from the book of Proverbs. hmm The first time that I came to Jamaica was early in 1966 to play football as a goalkeeper for the Trinidad and Tobago under-20 football team against a Boise Kingston College team that had 10 of the 11 players on the Jamaica under-20 team. Uh, uh, Young people are surprised to hear that as visitors at that time, we lived in the National Stadium that had comfortable rooms. And one evening, we were invited to dinner at the famous Myrtle Bank Hotel that was later destroyed by fire. And we visited UWI. And, you know, we were quite wide-eyed as older teenagers um, visiting UWI at the time. We were also treated to a day at Dunge River Falls together with the Kingston College footballers. Mm -hmm. By the time that we were ready to play football, we were probably overtired and overfed, we beat KC 3-2, but we lost to Jamaica on the 2 one <laughs> When I was playing football in Jamaica at that time, I had no idea that Jamaica would eventually become my home. And that happened after I eventually started to study medicine here. And a big part of the story is when I actually um, met the person who has become my wife. Oh Pauline Lewis was her name. She was a university student like me and um, the rest is history in, in that sense.
1: Yes, yeah, so you met the love of your life and that's how you anchored yourself in Jamaica.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: And um, both of you have three lovely children, yes.
2: Yes, and nine grandchildren now. Mm,
1: yes, mm. okay, well that's a whole life, of family life, but I want to right into your your, um, your academic life. You've distinguished yourself as a brilliant physician, a teacher, and a leader in Jamaica, the Caribbean, and indeed globally. What would you say was responsible for your passion and curiosity in particular areas? Because we, we, I understand that you have a passion for infectious disease and public health. What drove those passion in those areas?
2: Okay, well, um, let me stick with football at first because just after high school, I wanted to become a professional footballer. I'm starting, to take a, uh, I'm starting to answer your question about passion. Yes. But my heart had really been in medicine since I was about eight years old. So after I got into medical school, I began to focus on learning to be a medical student, learning to be a doctor. I said to myself, I wanted to be an, as excellent a doctor as I was beginning to be as a goalkeeper. So if anything, my passion was to be an excellent doctor. My mother, Maud Bain, taught me from the scriptures. And I'm going to um, paraphrase a little and use one or two different translations. What she said to me over and over is, if you see a man that is diligent in his approach to life, he will stand before kings. He will not have to take a back seat. She also used to tell people, Brendan works hard and plays hard. And I guess that was true of me in my teenage years and, and in my younger years as well. About curiosity, I took great interest in learning the details of medicine and public health, and I was able to do excellently in the basic science in, in medical school and in the practice of medicine, which, which led to my career, uh, the path to my career in infectious diseases. I, I don't know if I've answered your question well concerning passion and curiosity.
1: I hear you say from age eight that you had a passion, that something from that stage early in life started to to um, you know foster that passion. What happened at eight? What, what was going on there?
2: I've tried to think back and I'm really not sure. Um, it could be that I started meeting doctors in my hometown. Um, I just don't know. I've asked myself that question as well. But I know that my first job, fresh out of high school, was at the Trinidad Regional Virus Laboratory. And I enjoyed that very much and uh, learned a lot about viruses and bacteria uh, that kind of extended my high school learning. And that kind of piqued my curiosity. And uh, by the time I was an older teenager, I knew for sure that I wanted to study medicine.
1: Interesting. And you also, I mean, you studied medicine, you you are a physician, you are an academic, and you've been in many different areas of medicine, but you have a passion for infectious diseases. Is it from those early days in terms of learning about viruses from that time?
2: I have a feeling that that influenced me. And then when I was doing my postgrad um, training at the university hospital, I noticed that there weren't many people who showed a strong interest in clinical infections, you know, and I I was looking for a niche. And I remember going to my boss at the time, um, Professor George Aline, and saying to him, you know, Professor Aline, I would like to do further training in infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. And he had to negotiate a fellowship for me, which I did in London. It was a fellowship offered by the Wellcome Trust. And it really gave me a strong grounding in infectious diseases after I finished my postgrad, basic postgrad, doctor of medicine degree here in Jamaica. So I was part of the team at the communicable diseases unit responsible for care and treatment of adults and children with infections. And I conducted research in the Department of Microbiology at the hospital where I worked, which was St. George's Hospital and Medical School. And, um, and so I conducted research with samples from patients with lung infections and brain infections. That was a very exciting time for me. And it prepared me to come back just about two years before, one year before AIDS broke internationally yeah. and two, two years and a little more before we saw our first patient with AIDS in Jamaica.
1: All right, I want to jump into what you just said about HIV AIDS. Uh, what have you learned about human behavior and, and the management of public health crises? And you know, it's a it's an issue and an area that we, we are we're all focused on right now as we grapple with the COVID nineteen pandemic. And you have been walking in this field of, you know, studying viruses and treating persons with infections and HIV. What what would you say you have learned? about human behavior over the time?
2: Well, I think it's been very helpful, very instructive um, for me to compare the beginnings of the HIV epidemic in Jamaica with the beginnings of the COVID-19 epidemic in Jamaica. And I'm going to stick with Jamaica, although I hear things about um, other places, but I think that is probably more valid for me to speak from first, first-hand 1st impressions. I think at the start of the HIV AIDS epidemic, there was a lot of unfamiliarity, ignorance. People really didn't know much about viruses. They knew about the illnesses that viruses cause. But, you know, recently I've been thinking that not many people in our general community have ever had the privilege of looking into a microscope and seeing the creatures that you can't see with your naked eye. Mm. And when HIV was discovered to be the virus that causes AIDS, at first we didn't know, we knew it was communicable. Um, People were kind of bewildered and some people were doubting that this thing was real. Um, until maybe they came across persons in the community, people that they knew. And I think that there's still a tendency for people to deny the reality because they can't see the virus. Mm -hmm. And with COVID-19, I think that there's been a strong sense of denial among many people in the population. And that's understandable in a way. You know, the big images that we see on, te- in television, on television and in flyers, those are not the real virus. Those are magnified millions of times. And we think that we're seeing the virus. But the viruses are much, much smaller than a grain of sand. Mm-hmm. So we can't see them. So people are disbelieving that these are the things that can latch into our bodies, and the difference between COVID and HIV, in a broad sense, is the way it attaches, the places that it attaches in the body. Mm-hmm. With HIV, it's um, the the genitals, the the, uh, and it's also um, broken skin, blood contact, body fluid contact, mostly sexual body fluids. Unfortunately, but that's happening much less now, it can be transmitted by mother's milk if a mother is infected with Mm -hmm. the virus. With COVID, it can come to us by direct contact through coughing and sneezing and singing, you know, and laughing.
1: Singing, wow, yes.
2: Singing and laughing close to someone who is infected, you know, And, and that's just so weird. But you see, we, could, we, we knew about the common cold virus and it didn't give us any difficulty to believe that we could catch the common cold virus in all those same ways. But people just shrugged off the common cold virus. You know, common cold usually lasts for a couple of days and you get rid of it, you know. Um, sometimes it prevents you from going to work, but not for long. But some people who um, pick up COVID have very serious Um, a very serious illness, Uh, and uh, in extreme cases, it's a life-threatening illness. But people still doubt it uh, because they haven't been shown how to see the virus. I don't know if that's ever possible, I mean, for for the majority, but there are some people who work in microbiology laboratories who um, are able to visualize the actual virus, but we, we need to understand that some things that we don't see can kill us or can infect us and in extreme cases can kill us. Um, can I say one more thing? Um, whereas I have learned to respect the viruses that cause these diseases, I try not to be so afraid of them that it causes me to scorn or avoid persons who are infected, either with HIV, or in this case, uh, with COVID-19.
1: All right. Thank you for that point on compassion in terms of how we deal with other persons um, with infectious diseases. Um, I want to go now into another area of life, apart from public health. You've always maintained a strong interest in deep social issues, such as fatherhood and masculinity. And I know, in fact, involved in a new initiative called Man Up. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I think that you big me up a little bit too much when you say I've always maintained a strong interest. This it's is not a, always. <laughs> well, I've, I've had a strong interest in family life because I was the first chairman of the board of family life ministries when that organization was launched here in Jamaica in 1983. And uh, I actually did for almost 20 years serve as a talk show host on Radio Jamaica. Oh, uh, wow. Yes, um, in a program called Family Time, which was produced and broadcast by Family Life Ministries.
0: Okay. So I've been
2: interested in family life and in strengthening our family life in Jamaica. But more recently, through the influence of a colleague, Dr. Michael Coombs, I've become interested and in taken part in the early program that's called Man Up Jamaica, we call it Man U Jam for short. I consider it the beginning of a movement that I hope will take root across Jamaica. It's really an effort to make and maintain a stronger connection between the generations of men in Jamaica, an intergenerational link if you like, to help younger men to get in touch with themselves, to understand male roles and responsibilities, including our responsibility toward women Women in general, and in particular, the women that God brings into our lives. Yes. So I'm, say, I'm saying all lives, and I want to really in, include all ages of boys and men, because as a boy, there was always, for most most people, a mother in your life, and as you grow up, and as you become mature, you start interacting with girls and women and in some cases you may make a choice that they will be your permanent partner till death do us part as we say in wedding vows. So Manu Jam is very interested in promoting um, healthy and strong life among men and um, it was born out of an organization called the National Association for the Family, which Dr. Coombs chairs. Um, it's only five years old, and so we're gaining strength. But we see strengthening young men as a critical move to improving family life in Jamaica. Hmm. My wife Pauline is included in the planning team for our ma- manager programs. And the age group that we are reaching are from age 12 up to age 35. So far, we've had once a year uh, a a one-day session for between 200 and 300 young men. And we've invited older men who are great speakers, motivational speakers, to share the challenges that they have had during their growing up years and Mm -hmm. how they've become successful in life over time. And they tell true stories, no holes barred. They tell the truth, hard times and good times. We have question and answer periods. And we also have a team of facilitators who lead small group sessions for the young men. And they, they, they not only speak to them, they listen to their, to, to their stories and to mm-hmm. their thoughts and ideas about topics relevant to today's boys' and young men. Um, the mission of Manujam is to, know, to help a generation of men to know and affirm their identity, their purpose in life, to learn to respect themselves, to respect girls and women, and to be committed to family and nation building. So that, that's in a big... That's matter. a lot. Yeah, it, that's,
1: it, um, a, that's a lot. But I would, I would ask you a question in terms of what you have gleaned from some of the stories you've heard. You just talked about, you know, honest stories that are shared by the men. So I wanted to just ask you one quick point about what they would have shared helps them to overcome, because they would talk about their challenges and obstacles and so on and their successes. What what have you heard so far in your interaction with this program about how a man can overcome his challenge? For, you know, there are men who will be listening to this podcast. So if we could leave one nugget with them from what you've gleaned about how a man can overcome whatever the challenge is, hardship, poverty, family breakdown, whatever it was.
2: One of the outstanding stories is of a man who did not know his father in his growing up years. And when he was interacting after school with his peers, he would make up stories about who his father was oh, and boy. where his father was. Um, he has shared this story publicly, so I, I I feel like I'm allowed to share parts of it. He, okay. he, he, told, he told one of the groups that he told his peers that his father was a helicopterist <laughs> and uh, And he would tell them every time they got together which other country his father was visiting by flying his Mm -hmm. helicopter. I don't know how young boys believe those kinds of stories, (laughs) but it was very hard for him growing up without a father. But he had good adult women in his life and they helped him. And they were persons with Christian faith. So he eventually came to, um, to accept the Christian faith. Now he is um, an active member of a Christian church. He is also trained as a counseling psychologist, and he is married, and his only son um, has done outstandingly in career. Uh, The only reason I'm not giving you any more details is because it's a small country and people will put two two together and (laughs) know who I'm talking about. And he didn't know that I was going to repeat his story. Um, But uh, if I told you where his son is now, um, from an academic point of view, you would be amazed. And Mm -hmm. um, that was just one story. Other people talked about the the escapades with several um, young women but eventually coming out of that situation, learning to respect women, learning to to focus on um, a woman in their life who has become their wife and becoming a parent and becoming a father because um, if father was abroad, because in this case, father had migrated and so father wasn't present in this young man's life. Since then, he has become a father himself and is handling his role as husband and father, not without challenges, Mm -hmm. uh, but he's he's handling it and uh, is doing well from my perspective and from his own testimony.
1: Excellent, excellent. Thank you for those, Professor Bain. Uh, We're almost out of time, so I want to end by asking you what i like to ask my guests to share three cool things about Jamaica. One, your favorite spot. Two, your favorite person and why. And three, your favorite food and why.
2: My favorite spot is Frenchman's Cove. I was introduced to Frenchman's Cove uh, for my honeymoon. Oh. (laughs) And I didn't know that I would be able to afford Frenchman's Cove at that time. But one of my classmates who lived near to the place was able to negotiate a cut price for me. Mm -hmm. I have fantastic memories of Frenchman's Cove. And recently, my wife and I have been able to go back to Frenchman's Cove many times. Beautiful. Out out in Portland. So that's my favorite spot. My favorite person, you won't be too surprised, is my wife, Pauline. (laughs) Well, you'd lose points if she wasn't. (laughs) And um, persons who are close to us will know if I'm talking the truth. (laughs) And my favorite food comes from Trinidad. It's a special Christmas food called the pastel. Ah. And it's a food that's used in other Caribbean countries that have a Spanish history. It resembles the Jamaican delicacy called dukunu or Blue Draws. But um, pastels are made with a fine kind of corn mi- cornmeal called pomassa. Mm. It's stuffed with different types of seasoned meat or sometimes with a vegetarian filling wrapped in banana leaf for steaming. Delicious. When
1: was the last time you had it?
2: Well, maybe about five years ago because I don't go back to Trinidad's, <laughs> you know, and they confiscate it when it's b- brought. In, uh, brought into Jamaica into the island. because oh. of the meat.
1: Yeah. Uh, what a beautiful, scrumptious way to end our discussion. Uh, Professor Bain, it's been a pleasure sitting with you and hearing your insights about everything healthcare, everything human behavior. So many things we can pull from you, and to also hear about you, the person, was quite a pleasure. So, thank you so much for being with us on Impacting Jamaica.
0: Thanks very much. Impacting Jamaica was brought to you by the Port Authority of Jamaica, Harib Cement, and the Sajikor Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate, and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. you join us again for another in the series on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Stitcher, or on Deezer. You can also visit us at impactingjamaica.com. Impacting Jamaica is powered by Grace Kennedy.